Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 191, Ware's Outline of the Testimony of Scripture Against the Trinity. Henry Ware Jr. lived from 1794 till 1843. He was an American Unitarian minister. He pastored in Boston from 1807 till 1830. He was then professor of pulpit eloquence and the pastoral care at Harvard Divinity School from 1830 till 1842. He authored not only sermons and works of theology, but also poetry and fiction. In this 1827 lecture, Ware outlines a case for thinking the authors of the New Testament to be Unitarian rather than Trinitarian in their theology. It's powerfully and eloquently argued. I present it here in its entirety with just a word or two modernized. At the end of the podcast, I'll note a minor disagreement I have with it. Without further ado then, Outline of the Testimony of Scripture Against the Trinity by Henry Ware, Jr., 2nd edition, 1834. Why do we not believe the doctrine of the Trinity? Because it is not the doctrine of the Bible. This is our reason, not because the doctrine is a mystery, that is, if you mean by mystery something which we cannot fully understand or explain, This circumstance may create a difficulty in many minds, but notwithstanding this, if we found it testified to in Scripture as an unquestionable and essential doctrine, we should not hesitate to believe it, any more than we hesitate to believe that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, or that God foreknows all things, and that yet man is a free agent. We only ask for proof that it is taught in the Bible. We have looked for it and do not find it. We do find that God is revealed to be one, but we do not find that he is revealed to be three. Neither three persons, nor three subsistences, nor three distinctions, nor three somewhats, for each of these words has been used to explain the doctrine. Therefore, we cannot believe it. That God is revealed to be one is a proposition which I need not stop to prove for no one denies it. It would be consuming time to no purpose to quote passages in support of it. I therefore pass to the other proposition, we do not find in Scripture that God is revealed to be three. This is the doctrine opposed to our faith, and which it is necessary for us in upholding the truth of the Bible distinctly to disprove. In doing this, we make our appeal to the Bible, And may he, who blessed man with that precious volume, aid us in so unfolding its testimony, that we may speak concerning him the thing which is right. We refer principally in this brief outline to the testimony of the New Testament. If it appear that this is decidedly against the doctrine, it is enough. No one will pretend to prove it from the Old Testament alone. If Jesus and the apostles deny it, No one will think that Moses and the prophets assert it. Section 1. The terms which are necessary to the very statement of the doctrine, and which cannot well be avoided by those who hold it, are not found in Scripture. The words, 
Trinity, Triune, Jehovah Jesus, God-Man are not in the scriptures. We nowhere find the expression God the Son, but always the Son of God. Nowhere God the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit. The expressions first person, second person, third person, three persons are not found. Now, if the very words which are necessary to express the doctrine are not in the scriptures, how can we suppose the doctrine itself to be there? If the sacred writers meant to teach this doctrine, how is it possible they should not sometimes have used the words which are now used in regard to it? Section 2. The doctrine of the Trinity is nowhere stated in express terms, while that of the sole divinity of the Father is taught in language the most explicit and direct. There are only three texts which speak of the Father, Son, and Spirit in formal connection, and neither of these declares them to be three equal persons in the divinity. Is it possible this should be the case if the doctrine were true? Is it possible that the apostles should never name them together but three times, and then not speak of their being one God? Indeed, I am wrong to say that there are three texts, there are only two, for one of the three passages to which I referred is well known to be no part of the Bible, namely 1 John 5, 7, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This verse, everybody knows, was not written by St. John, but has been added to this epistle since his day. John wrote in Greek, but the old manuscripts of the Greek Testament do not contain it. It is only found in the Latin. It has therefore no right to a place in the New Testament and ought to be rejected. It is rejected by all impartial scholars of every denomination who have inquired concerning it. There are therefore only two texts which formally name the Father, Son, and Spirit in connection with each other. The first is the form of baptism, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Here the three are placed in connection, but observe the mode of expression. Does it say that they are three persons? No, it does not say that they are persons at all. Does it assert that they constitute one God? No. Does it say that each is God? No such thing. Does it say they are all equal? No such thing. Does it say they are all to be worshipped? No. Then it does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. If it neither declares them to be three persons, nor equal to each other, nor each to be God, nor each to be worshipped, then it does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. The same is true of the other text, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. It is not here said that each is God, nor that all are equal, nor that all are to be worshipped, nor that all three together constitute one. Therefore, it does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Nay, it virtually denies it. For as you observe, it does not speak of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but of Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Spirit. Observe the difference and consider what it implies. 
Would a Trinitarian express himself in these words and in this order when intending to express his doctrine? If it were Father, Son, and Spirit, we should of course regard them as three and not one, unless expressly instructed to the contrary. How much more when the words run, Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Spirit. So that there is only one text which unites the terms Father, Son, and Spirit, and that one says nothing of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now I ask seriously, if it had been intended to teach that doctrine, is it possible that this should be the case? It is thus plain that this doctrine is nowhere taught in express terms. You then say, it is perhaps taught indirectly and by necessary implication. I answer, it is impossible this should be, because the doctrine that the Father alone is God is taught in the most direct and absolute terms that language will admit, so as positively to put out of the question every other doctrine and to take away the liberty of inferring any other from indirect expressions. That this is so may be seen at once from a few plain and explicit texts which seem to be perfectly decisive. 1. John 17.3 This life is eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is the language of our Lord himself in prayer. Now that he was at prayer proves that he could not be God, for God never prays. But besides this, he strongly asserts that the Father only is God. It could not be asserted more strongly. It never has been asserted more strongly. 2. Mark 13.32 But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. This is the language of our Lord. He declares that he does not know the time of that day and hour, that the Father only knows it. Therefore, the Father only can be God, for God knows all things. 3. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What can assert more positively than this that Jesus is not the one God? If not, then there is no Trinity. 4. 1 Corinthians 8.6 But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by Him. This text is very positive. It declares that Jesus is our Lord, but that the Father only is our God. Can language be devised which shall declare it more positively? 5. Ephesians 4, 5 and 6 One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. What can the Apostle mean by this separation of our Lord from the one God and Father of all, if it do not intimate the Father's complete and unrivaled supremacy? What words can speak it if such words as these mean anything else? Has it ever been asserted by any Unitarian more unequivocally? 
I ask then, seriously, in the fear and presence of Almighty God, and in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, whether these five positive explicit assertions that the Father only is God ought not to set the question at rest in our minds. While we have these plain and intelligible declarations of the divine word, which never have been and never can be made consistent with the doctrine of three equal persons in the Godhead, ought we to be turned away from our faith by any arguments which might be drawn from more obscure passages? Ought we to take up the opposite doctrine because it may be ingeniously inferred from difficult and controverted texts? Are we not bound by these plain declarations? And while they stand in our Bibles, uncontroverted and unrefuted, shall it be said that we reject the testimony of God and depart from the oracles of truth? For myself, so long as the glorious doctrine of the divine unity is built upon these five sacred pillars, I must confide in it as the truth of God. If the holy oracle can announce any truth plainly and unequivocally, it has so announced this. To my ear, it speaks in language the most unambiguous and the least susceptible of perversion. While I abide by it in these plain texts, I know what I believe. I have the sure word of truth. If I forsake these and attempt to reason out another doctrine from more difficult passages, I am not sure that my reason may not deceive me in the process and lead me to wrong conclusions. I am safer, therefore, to abide by the testimony inscribed on these five pillars, which I can read as I run. Section 3. As these fundamental texts most plainly teach the supremacy of the Father, so there are equally decisive texts respecting the character and offices of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit which go to confirm it. Let us attend to these. Let us consider first the language which is commonly used respecting our Lord Jesus. Is it such as implies that He is the same with Almighty God? Take his testimony respecting himself. I came not to do mine own will. I can of myself do nothing. The Son can do nothing of himself. The Father that is in me, he doeth the works. He calls himself, He whom the Father hath sanctified and sent. He says, I am come in my Father's name. And after his resurrection, he says, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Ponder these expressions, weigh these words, and say whether they be the words of one who would represent himself as the independent God. Take the testimony of the apostles. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God by signs and wonders which God did by him appointed to be a prince and savior, 
at the right hand of God exalted, made both Lord and Christ. Because of his obedience unto death, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. In the end, he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, that God may be all in all. Weigh these expressions deliberately and consider whether it be possible that they should be used concerning Almighty God. Yet such as these are applied to Jesus in every part of the New Testament. Consider the terms of faith in him which were required of his disciples. Were they such as implied his supreme divinity? Remember the confession of Peter? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with this, Jesus was satisfied. Remember the confession of Martha. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he required no more. Remember the reason which John gives for writing his gospel. These are written so that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Who does John say is born of God? Whoso believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Who does he say overcomes the world? He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. What was the preaching of the apostles? Look through the book of Acts and you will find the burden of it to be reasoning from the scriptures and testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it is possible that, in all that which is thus said of the necessity and value of faith in Jesus, when believers were to be received into the church and their immortal interests were depending, is it possible that they should not have been required to believe him to be the Almighty God if he were so? Would he and the apostles have so solemnly assured them that faith in him as the Son of God was sufficient if, in truth, he had been the very God? 2. The same conclusion may be as decisively drawn from the language perpetually used respecting the Holy Spirit. Language wholly inconsistent with the idea of a divine person distinct from the Father and equal with him. The Spirit is said to be poured out, shed, given, given without measure. Men are said to be baptized with it, filled with it, to partake of it. But this cannot be said of a person. It signifies, evidently, in such passages, a divine influence, an influence which may descend from the person of the Father as well as from some distinct person. God does not become another person because he gives his spirit to men. When Paul visited Ephesus, he found certain Christians there and asked them if they had received the Holy Ghost. They answered, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. How is this? The Holy Ghost, a person in the Godhead, equal with the Father and essential to salvation to know Him, and yet these disciples never heard of Him? Impossible! 
and therefore impossible that it should be a third person in the deity distinct from the Father and equal in power and glory. No, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Paul tells us what it is when he says, As no man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him, so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is God himself, just as the Spirit of a man is the man himself. It is no more a separate person than a man's spirit is a separate person. Thus, the supremacy of the Father remains unaffected. 3. There are also many expressions respecting Jesus and the Holy Spirit in connection with each other, which confirm the evidence that the Father alone is God. It will be sufficient to cite these without comment, since the mere reading of them will show how utterly irreconcilable they are with the idea of three persons, alike equal and supreme. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwelleth in you. Consider what each of these passages must mean if the doctrine of the Trinity be true, and you will perceive them to be utterly irreconcilable with it. Each of the sentences quoted speaks of God, of Jesus, and of the Spirit, and this in such manner that, if each be God, they express a meaning which is absurd. Section 4. Thus far we have looked at the testimony of Scripture as exhibited in particular classes of texts. We may now turn to some considerations drawn from the general style of the New Testament. Here we shall find that the doctrine of the divine unity so pervades and gives a complexion to the New Testament that if we should conceive the doctrine of the Trinity to be true, it would alter the complexion of the whole. It would not be such as it is if that doctrine were true. This may be partially illustrated from the devotional character of the New Testament, from the conduct of the disciples toward their Lord, from the conduct of the Jews toward him and his disciples, and from the controversies of that age. 1. Look at the devotional character of the New Testament. If the apostles worshipped God in three persons, it will so appear in their conduct and writings. This circumstance will characterize their devout expressions everywhere, and this the more especially because they were Jews, a people who worshipped God with a strict and most jealous regard to his unity. They could not have changed their practice in this particular without the change being most strikingly observable. Yet we have no intimation of such a change. 
they appear to have gone on with the worship of the one God of their fathers without any alteration. Look at this fact. When Paul was converted, he must have passed, supposing the Trinity to be a Christian doctrine, from believing Jesus a blasphemous imposter to believing him the Lord Jehovah. Is there the least hint of such an amazing change? He speaks with admiration and rapture of the new views and feelings which he enjoyed with his new faith, but all the rest together was not so astonishing and wonderful as this particular change. Yet he nowhere alludes to it. Is it then possible that it could have been so? That so great a revolution of feeling should have taken place and no intimation of it be found in any act or expression? He speaks frequently of his prayers. And how? I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Making mention of you in my prayers, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom. It is plain, therefore, to whom Paul directed his worship. His epistles contain many doxologies and ascriptions of praise to God. And in what terms? Always to one person, God the Father. And not once, either in his epistles or in any other writing of the Bible, is a doxology to be found which ascribes praise to the Father, Son, and Spirit, or to the Trinity in any form. This fact is worth remarking. The New Testament contains, I think, 28 ascriptions in various forms, and from not one of them could you learn that the doctrine of the Trinity had been dreamt of in that day. Honor is doubtless ascribed to the Savior in terms of gratitude, love, and rapture. It could not be otherwise. How could they who had seen him avoid it when we who have not seen him are constrained to love him and through our faith in him to rejoice with joy unspeakable? Ascriptions of gratitude and honor to the Savior who will not render, but this does not prove him to be the Almighty God. When the company around the throne are represented in the apocalypse as uttering a new song of blessing and honor and glory to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, it never can be understood that they attribute divinity to the Lamb, much less that he is the same being with him who sits on the throne. For he is standing in the midst of the elders and is praised because he was slain. This is not a description suitable to God. And thus, while the New Testament overflows with warm expressions of reverence and gratitude toward Jesus, it is as to the Son of God, and it reserves all supreme worship for the Father. Jesus himself worshipped the Father. The language of the apostles was, giving thanks always to God, even the Father, through Jesus Christ. And when honor to the Son is spoken of, it is distinctly stated that it is to the glory of God the Father. Such is the devotional aspect of the New Testament, an aspect which it could not possibly present if the disciples had practiced and meant to teach the worship of God in three persons. 2. The manner in which the disciples conducted themselves toward their Master is a certain proof to the same point. Conceive that they supposed him to be infinite Jehovah, 
the God of their fathers, whom they had been adoring from their childhood in the strong and awful reverence of the Mosaic worship. And could they have lived and conversed with him freely as they did? Could Peter have rebuked and denied him? Judas betrayed him and all forsaken him? Impossible, perfectly impossible. All their interactions with him must have worn a wholly different complexion. It is not in human nature to have lived with one whom they knew to be God, and yet to have conducted themselves as if he were not. 3. The same thing may be said of the conduct of the Jews toward him. If they had supposed him to be the God of their fathers, is it possible that they should have treated him with violence and contempt? They did not suppose it, yet knew that he claimed to be such, and that his apostles so regarded him, they must have looked upon him with horror as the highest blasphemer. And would this not have sometimes appeared? This is a very strong point. When he was accused before their council, and the charge was blasphemy, they were evidently at no small straits to support the charge. The only evidence which they could at last adduce was that he had said he could raise up the temple in three days. Now, if he had ever claimed in any way to be Almighty God, or had given any intimation that he desired to be so considered, would they not have remembered it against him at such a moment? When they were eager to seize on the most trifling circumstance, when they sought long for false witness before they could find one, is it to be believed they would pass by such a charge as this? And as they were entirely silent concerning it, is it not certain that he could never have made any such claim? Nothing can be more decisive than this consideration. Yet it may be corroborated, if not strengthened, by adverting to a remarkable incident in his history. Some of the Jews, on a certain occasion, took up stones to stone him. He inquired the cause of their violence. They answered, Because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. To this he replied by a positive denial, and by a full explanation cleared himself of the charge, saying that he claimed to be only the Son of God. After this they seem never have to repeated the accusation not even when they were ready to make unfair measures for his condemnation. And yet, strange to say, this explanation, which satisfied his enemies, has not prevented his followers from still insisting to repeat the charge which he refuted, that he, being a man, made himself God. 4. The conduct of the Jews toward the disciples after their Lord's death proves that they knew nothing of the Trinitarian doctrine. They were active in establishing a new dispensation of religion and thus drew on themselves the condemnation, abuse, and persecution of their countrymen. Wherever they went, they were assailed by the Jews with outrage and violence. They were accused of speaking blasphemous words against the holy place and the law, of turning the world upside down, of designing to overthrow the religion of their fathers, and were scoffed at as followers of a master who had died the ignominious death of a malefactor but they were never accused of worshiping him or preaching him as God. Amidst all their enemies' accusations, about the fairness of which we cannot think they would have been very scrupulous, they never brought forward this. And yet, in the eye of a Jew, it must have been the most hateful thing in their system. To teach that Nazarene enthusiast, whom they had despised and slain, 
was the very God whom they had always honored and worshipped, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nothing could have so excited them against the new religion and its active propagators. Yet it never formed the ground of their opposition. Is it not therefore certain that the apostles never held such a doctrine? 5. Of the same nature is the following argument. There arose several controversies in that age, especially with those Jews who had been converted to Christianity. Some of these are treated of in the epistles. But it is very observable that among the questions which thus arose and required explanations from the apostles, there is no record of any question or controversy respecting the object of worship. And yet, if the new religion was adding two new objects of worship to that of the old, this would have been to a Jew by far the most important, most interesting, and most perplexing of all the peculiarities of the gospel. No such doctrine could have been added to the ancient faith of the Jews, with whom the unity of God was the proud and distinguishing tenet, without its occasioning some controversy between those who received and those who persecuted the new faith. Yet no such controversy took place. Neither is there the slightest appearance in the New Testament that any objection, difficulty, or doubt arose in any quarter upon this ground. Is it not impossible, then, that any such doctrine should have been taught? Section 5. I have thus gone over a few heads of the scriptural argument respecting the divine unity, but in speaking thus decidedly respecting the testimony of the scriptures, we must not be understood to assert that there is nothing in this volume which seems to favor the Trinitarian doctrine or that its advocates are altogether without plausible support. Far from it. There are undoubtedly many passages of difficult interpretation and many expressions, more or less direct, which may be construed to assign supreme divinity to the Savior and personality to the Spirit. But there are two considerations which go to show that, although this be the case, yet the certainty of our doctrine is not in any degree affected by it. 1. The first of these considerations is that the texts which speak most directly and plainly on this subject are decidedly Unitarian. These we have already quoted, and no forms of speech could be selected more explicit and unequivocal. But this is not the case with those texts which are quoted in support of the Trinity. Not one of them states the doctrine in so many words. The doctrine is made up by inference and argument from separate texts. Many of these texts are among the most perplexing and difficult passages in the Bible, passages which have tried the skill of interpreters in all ages, and which have received a variety of expositions. Now it is plain that where such passages are cited in proof of the Trinity, the value of the citation must depend on the correctness of the criticism, that is, on the soundness of the reasoning by which the text is interpreted. That is, the doctrine is thus far supported by the power of reason simply. 
Need I say how different from the support which our principal texts give to the doctrine of the unity? Thus it appears that the doctrine of the Trinity is mainly dependent for its support on processes of reasoning, processes by which the most plain and decisive texts are made to bend to the less plain, the easy are interpreted by the difficult. We think it safer not thus to trust our power of interpreting dark places, but to take the plain texts for our guide and solve the dark ones by them. And if there be some which still remain obscure and which we cannot satisfactorily clear up, we should esteem it safer to leave them as they are, unexplained, than to give them a meaning and then find ourselves obliged to conform the plain texts to them. In the one case, we should think that we followed our own power of logic, and in the other, the simple word of revelation. Two, the second consideration to which I referred is this. The assumption or supposition which is resorted to in order to make these plain, decisive passages agree with the Trinitarian doctrine is of a character to confirm us yet more strongly in our belief This assumption is that Jesus Christ possessed two perfect natures, the human and the divine, and that he sometimes speaks and acts as a man, and sometimes as God. Now, if this were expressly asserted in Scripture, it would be very well, but it is not so asserted, and what is more, it is by none pretended to be expressly taught there. It is argued that it must be so, because it is a supposition which serves to remove difficulties and to reconcile the language which is used respecting the Lord. But we have no right, it seems to me, to reason out for ourselves a doctrine of such magnitude as this for such a purpose, especially when it creates difficulties quite as embarrassing as those which it removes. It seems to me far more so. For look at the case a moment. The assertion is that our Lord speaks and acts sometimes as God and sometimes as man. Accordingly, when we argue thus, he declares that he does not know the day or the hour. He says he can do nothing of himself. He prays to God. It is then replied, he says these things as man. He does not, as man, possess supreme power or know the future, and as man, he prays. But still, As God, he is omnipotent and omniscient and asks no blessing from on high. Now, this assertion may support the doctrine of the Trinity and may evade certain difficulties which Scripture throws in its way, but does it not create a more serious difficulty than it removes? Let any man candidly examine the subject and say whether or not it is so. For I speak it reverently, and my hand trembles as I write, Does it not attribute to our Lord a very strange way of speaking and something of a deceptive manner? To say that he does not know when he really does, and that he cannot do what he has infinite power to do? For if he were God, it would not be true that he did not know the future. It would not be true that he did not know his own will and did not work miracles of himself. And therefore, I beg to ask, in the name of all that is reverent and good, whether we can find it in our hearts to advocate a doctrine which can be supported only on a supposition which exposes the blessed Jesus to the charge of untruth and deception.
a supposition which would render it impossible if carried to its full extent to believe anything which he may say. A supposition which would render it impossible if carried to its full extent to believe anything he may to believe anything which he may say, for one has only to assert he spake this or that in his human nature, not as God, and therefore it has no authority. And then all his testimony on religious truth may be entirely set aside. No. Let the plain declarations of our Savior's word be enough for us, and let us rejoice that we hold a faith which allows us to believe every word that he said just as he uttered it without the necessity of explaining away a syllable on the plea that he sometimes spake in one character and sometimes in another. Such are a few of the reasons which are directly and indirectly furnished by the scriptures for holding the doctrine of the undivided unity of God. We regard it as the clear and unquestionable doctrine of holy writ, and therefore to be held with firm and decided faith. The more confident our persuasion that it is so, the more highly shall we value it, and the more shall we rejoice to see it extended and honored. If we feel that he whom we call Master and Lord, the author and finisher of our faith, who lived and died that he might secure to us the blessing of our religion, and whose kingdom we desire to spread with its holy and beneficent influences, if we believe that he taught and inculcated this doctrine, then, as his disciples, we shall desire that it prevail, for it is his truth. The End When the Trinity's podcast returns, I offer a criticism of Ware's argument in this little book. Before we go, I wanted to offer a little bit of criticism on the topic of worship. I think Ware is a little bit unclear about this. Sometimes he says that in the New Testament, only God is worshipped. That is to say, only the Father is worshipped. Well, I think when he says that, he's using the term worship in a way that just by definition, worship is something which is only appropriate to God. One way to put it is that the term worship just means worship as God, or to honor in the way that only God should be honored. Well, if that's what we mean by worship, then yes, we should only worship the Father, because only the Father is the one true God himself. But the various biblical terms that we translate as worship are more flexible, generally speaking, There are some different words with different nuances that I won't go into. This is discussed in James Dunn's 2010 book called, Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? The New Testament Evidence. I'll put a link to a review of that book and the book on the blog post for this episode. He goes into the ins and the outs of the various Greek and Hebrew terms. The main term in the New Testament is proskuneo, literally to bow down. 
It's clear that in some cases, this term just means to do obeisance to, to give honor to a king, in some cases by bowing down. And when it's not in a religious context, you wouldn't normally translate that as worship. For instance, we see this in the context where the three wise men visit the young Jesus. They're there because they think he's destined to be a king, not because they think he's God. And so they do him honor in the way that one does to a king. But of course, in a religious context, it's perfectly correct to translate that as worship. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I want to read you a passage here from the book, A Man Attested by God, The Human Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels. This is by Dr. J.R. Daniel Kirk, who I interviewed in podcasts 155 and 156. He's commenting here on the term proskuneo, which is used in the Greek version, the ancient Greek translations of the Old Testament, and not just in the New Testament. And this is what he says on page 376 of his book. In the biblical stories of the years in which Israel had kings, the narrative easily slides between proskuneo as a term signifying divine worship and as a term signifying deference to the king or other revered figure. But proskuneo may very well signify worship in the strong sense of the term, without indicating that Jesus is receiving a divine ascription previously acceptable only for the one God of Israel. As discussed in chapter 1, 1 Chronicles 29.20 is instructive here. In that astonishing scene, the chronicler tells of David and all Israel making provision for constructing the temple that Solomon will go on to build. After his prayer celebrating God's faithfulness and praying for Solomon and Israel, David invites the assembly to worship God. They do so, bowing down and worshiping not only God, but also the king. As God's representative on the earth, it is not too much to say that the king might even participate in the worship due to God alone without infringing on God's deity. See also Psalm 45. Once again, we find that the discrete categories of actions or attributes allegedly reserved for God alone can at times contain sufficient fluidity to embrace God's appointed human agents. This case, in particular, raises significant questions for Hurtado's thesis that being included in worship is a clear indication that the hard line between deity and humanity has been crossed. Let me give you my paraphrase of that. Some suppose that first century Jews thought strictly only God can be given religious worship. So whatever is given to someone else has got to be just secular honor, non-religious submission or obeisance. But that doesn't quite seem right. They seem to allow that you could worship God by worshiping God's agent, God's human agent. In that passage in First Chronicles, God and the King. In Philippians 2, as Ware mentions, God exalts the man Jesus, and it's to his own glory. So about Ware, I don't know how anybody can look at Revelation 5 and say, well, that's not really worship, or how anybody can look at Philippians 2 and say, oh, no, Jesus isn't being worshipped there. That's what I would say. What else do you want to call it? They're singing praises. They're bowing down. Seems like worship. What they're doing to God is very similar to what they're doing to Jesus. At one point, Ware tries to make a distinction, like some Unitarians do, 
between a higher worship and a lower worship, fine. I'm not quite sure how you define those two different types of actions, but you could say the father just should be worshipped as God and the son should be worshipped as son of God. And I guess the main difference would be the reason for which you're honoring them and even the things that you specifically say to them. And this is really noticeable in Revelation 4 and 5. They praise God in chapter 4 for being God. They, I would say, worship Jesus in Revelation 5 because of his service to God, even to the point of death. So with that caveat, I think Ware's arguments are quite strong. I wouldn't be soft on the worship of Jesus. I think that tends to play into the hands of some Unitarian Christians who wrongheadedly suppose that worshiping Jesus is idolatry or who are worried that that's going to somehow encroach on what's due to God alone or take something away from God. My own view, which I fully explain in my presentation and paper called Who Should Christians Worship?, is that in the New Testament, God is worshipped and Jesus is worshipped. God is worshipped because he's God, and Jesus is worshipped because God has exalted him to his right hand. And to exalt him is to put him in a position where people are obliged to honor him, that is, to worship him, not as God, but as the exalted Son of God. And of course, that doesn't take honor away from God, When you honor the Son, you honor the Father. When you honor the one sent, you honor the sender. It's a two-for-one deal. When you worship Jesus, you're automatically also worshiping the one that sent him, empowered him, raised him, and exalted him. Why didn't the Jews react to this? I think it's just because what they heard the Christians to be saying in these early years was that Jesus was to be honored or worshiped to the glory of God the Father. And Jews were aware of other Jewish traditions of giving what you could call religious worship to one of God's human agents. And so that by itself wasn't considered a violation of monotheism. Jewish monotheism required worshiping only God and not any of the other alleged deities of the various pantheons and the surrounding nations. Jewish monotheism didn't require withholding worship from someone who God has exalted to a worship-worthy position. One little piece of news is that What is the Trinity is now available in audiobook form. It comes out to roughly three and a quarter hours. It doesn't have the footnotes, but it has the complete text as read by yours truly. You can get that at audible.com or at Amazon. And one way you can get it for free is by trying a free month of Audible. So if you're inclined, go for it. The audiobook price is a little bit more than the paperback price. Sorry, I wasn't able to control that. Audible sets the price if you're just going to buy it without an Audible subscription. Before we go, a couple of listener comments and an iTunes review. Someone wrote to me, and I apologize, I lost track of the name. They said, Dale, I wanted to express my thanks to you. Without your podcast, I would have never discovered the brilliant pioneers, probably not the best term to describe them, of biblical Unitarianism, such as George Noyes, George Washington Burnap, Andrews Norton, Thomas Belsham, Alvin Lamson, etc. 
I love the resources these gentlemen and their contemporaries produced. What baffles me is how these men of our recent history go unmentioned and unnoticed. I went to a Christian high school and learned next to nothing. I would love to be a Christian history teacher in middle school and walk through this stuff with students. Maybe one day. Thanks again and God bless. Well, thanks for your note, and I pray that God blesses you with your dream of becoming a teacher in a Christian high school. You're welcome. It's a great privilege for me to help people remember some of these works by American and British Unitarians, and I've just added one more today. There's not any good reason why this Christian Protestant minority report should be ignored. I think you should take a case like this, or the one I gave two episodes ago, and you should put it right up against the strongest case that a person can make from the Bible to the Trinity, and you should judge which is the better case, which is more persuasive. As a philosopher, I don't agree with the embargo on Christian Unitarian sources. You can't really be sure what you think about a topic until you've heard the best that the other side can offer. On Facebook, Mark writes to me this, The Trinity book was fantastic. How strange of you to assume that individuals can work through the details on their own, not needing to be told what to believe. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And thanks for your help in getting the word out about it. Thanks also to the people who have reviewed it on Amazon. As I record this episode, there are six five-star ratings with reviews, and I really appreciate that. And if you've read it, please give me some more. I'm sure the trolls and haters will show up eventually, and it'd be nice to have enough to outweigh whatever slander they're going to offer. One last thing, we got a new review for the podcast in the iTunes store for Norway. A username, Kajchen. And if that's your name, please forgive me for saying it so poorly. This person gives five stars with a headline, one of the best. And they say, I think this is a very honest and thorough podcast with a wide spectrum of theological subjects. One of the things I love about this podcast is the clarity when discussing rather complex theories and concepts. You will not be told what to think, but rather stimulated to think for yourself and challenge your own preconceived ideas. I recommend it to all. Thank you, my friend from Norway. Much appreciated. Do send us a comment anytime on the Facebook group or even by audio. If you'd like instructions on how you can leave a rating and review in the iTunes store for your country, you can go to trinities.org slash blog slash review. This week's thinking music has been the track Clover by Little Glass Men. There's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download this entire track. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.